Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to this next week of being scattered together. Happy November, uh, which it will be by the time you're watching this. And it will be an hour earlier. How does that work again? Is it uh, fall back? And so you're going to have an extra hour of sleep. You should be so much more awake and alert and ready to interact with this. So uh, I'm excited to see what the Spirit's going to do here. Uh, we're coming to this time in our service now. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. Uh, we did get to have a few uh, people join us again as we we're testing out, doing our test runs of service and uh, who could be here as well to witness Christabel's baptism. So that's been exciting. But let's look now at this next exciting part of our service. Uh, in Ephesians 6, if you have a Bible or a Bible app with you, if you would turn to Ephesians 6, uh, we're going to begin in verse 10 again just to give us context. But uh, what we'll be focusing today is verse 16. Paul says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm, stand therefore. Having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And here's where we'll focus in today. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us quickly here and just commit this time in the word to God, and then we'll dig in. Uh, Spirit of God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've inspired men centuries ago to write this, and now as we come to it, we ask you to accomplish the purpose through it that you intend today, uh, not by any ability of my own, but by the power of that same Spirit speaking through it and working in each of our hearts. Accomplish that, I pray, in all the ways that you want to today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, I think it's safe to say that every generation since the invention of the television has had TV shows that help define the era that you grew up in. I don't know what it was before that. Maybe it was like a radio show or a book or something like that. But since television has been invented, most of us have TV shows that we look back on and they kind of define the era that we grew up in. So for me, as a child of the 70s and the 80s, uh, I look back and think of like Happy Days, MASH, um, Wonder Years, Dukes of Hazard, these kinds of shows with things that I grew up in. But when I think about that after school post-homework but pre-dinner time slot in the day, the, the show that stands out most to me, that kind of defines my childhood, has got to be Star Trek. I don't know how many others are Star Trek watchers who've uh, picked up on that over the years. I, I, still to this day, if I hear that classic theme music come in and, and either like William Shatner or Patrick Stewart speaking that iconic opening monologue, Space, the final frontier. As soon as I hear that, immediately I'm, I'm back on my couch in the living room at the home I grew up in. It's, it's pretty cool how that happens. But, but if you've ever watched that show, Star Trek, um, at any point in your life, whether TV shows, the movies, whatever it is, 
you probably already know that flying through space, as they do, something like shields are a pretty important part of the defense system for these ships. Like, you, you needed regular deflector shields as you were just flying through space, because, of course, there's space debris and rocks and all kinds of stuff, and you're traveling at warp speed, so you need that. But then you would also need defensive shields, particularly when you consider this seemingly endless barrage of enemy alien attacks, which apparently just happen on a daily basis in space. They just happen to show up uh, everywhere in space. You, you needed these defensive shields as well. And so pretty routine occurrence on the show, if you've seen this, is uh, an alien enemy ship would pull up behind the starship and, and, and lock their photon torpedoes onto them. I guess that was like how they said hello in space. And, you know, then all of a sudden alarms start going off. Captain, they've locked on photons. And then ca causing the captain to then say, bring up the shields. Set shields to maximum strength, whatever it is. And after a while of watching the show, I remember just thinking to myself one day, it just struck me as odd, and I thought, well, why don't they always keep the shields up? That doesn't make sense. Like, why, why do they keep waiting for attack to come, particularly because it seems to always happen? Why, why do they keep waiting for an attack to come before turning the shields on? And of course, not having Google at the time, like with many things, I was just left to wonder. I wonder why they don't do that. But <laughs> apparently, it seems I wasn't the only one with that question. Because as I did just a quick Google search this week, I was brought straight to a website which honestly was set at like geek level 9.4, where this question, among others, people discuss this exact question of why don't you have the shields up all the time? And really they discussed it in kind of a ridiculous level of detail that made me kind of uncomfortable. I was like, it's a show, guys. Anyway, the answer apparently being that the shields use up a great deal of the ship's energy resources. Uh, as they're flying around. And so as one contributor hilariously noted, for the same reason that you don't walk around like this with your fists up all the time, just in case someone might punch you in the face, shields are only raised when an attack or a threat of an attack is imminent. Makes sense. Fair enough. Well, we, we're, we're continuing on in these final weeks now into this series through the book of Ephesians and looking at what Paul teaches us about the armor of God in particular here in chapter 6 now, so far we've learned about the reality of this unseen spiritual battle raging all around us uh, between uh, the evil one and all of his forces of darkness in the heavenly places and God's redeemed people of the church, as well as the fact that God has given us his own strength with which to fight this battle. And then over the past few weeks, if you've been with us, you've seen we, we've begun to look at the armor God provides us as well in order to stand firm in this battle, looking at the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and then last Sunday, the shoes of gospel readiness. And today, the next piece of armor that we're going to look at now is the shield of faith. The shield of faith. Now, as we just discovered from our next level Star Trek friends, a shield is something that you only raise, that you only need when you're under attack or under the threat of attack. It's not something that you have up all the time. In, in, in most situations, and yet, if you look again at verse 16, look there with me. Look at how Paul begins with these words where he says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Okay, well, I think what we need to assume from that statement is that the attacks of the enemy in this spiritual battle 
are constant. They are constantly coming. There is, therefore, no time when we can afford to let down the shields and just fly with the, the regular shields on. We, we always are going to need this shield up in this spiritual battle that we're a part of. As John Stott notes as well of these spiritual forces of evil set against us in this battle, quote, he says, they recognize no Geneva Conventions to restrict or partially civilize the weapons of their warfare. They are utterly unscrupulous and ruthless in the pursuit of their malicious designs, end quote. Which if you really think about that, that's kind of terrifying. <laughs> it's, it's just this constant uh, attack and barrage of, of, of weapons and attacks from all, all sides at various times and various forms. It sounds completely exhausting. It sounds overwhelming. It sounds like an unwinnable battle, even for the best and bravest among us. And here's the thing. It is. It is in our own strength. Which, of course, is exactly why I think, along with the resource of this armor of God that we've been given, God also says here, Paul tells us, that we've been able to fight with the strength of his might, as we saw there in verse 10. And so in order to help us now better understand this next essential piece of armor, the shield of faith, that again, we need to make the intentional choice to to take up and, and put on in this spiritual battle that's raging around us, to understand both what it is and how we make use of it. All I want to do is start for just a few minutes, actually, to look back historically at the shield in physical warfare. How was this shield actually used in the Roman military? And then we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at the shield in spiritual warfare. That's where we'll spend most of our time. So the shield in physical warfare, the shield in spiritual warfare. For again, although Paul uses the shield of a Roman soldier, he's describing this as a metaphor to help us picture this part of the armor of God. The thing that Paul says actually shields us in the battle is not a physical shield, but faith. Faith is the shield. So if you close your Bibles, your Bible app, whatever it is, if you want to open that again and follow along with me in this next section here, Ephesians 6, 16. Follow along with me as we learn about this next piece of armor and how it can enable you to stand firm in the battle. All right, so let's look first of all at the shield in physical warfare. Shield in physical warfare. So like I said, we're not going to spend a great deal of time here with this, um, but, but as we've seen with each of the pieces of armor that Paul describes, He's using the armor of a Roman soldier as a metaphor to help his readers kind of visualize what it is that he's talking about in a spiritual sense. And so I think understanding what this Roman shield that he's referring to, what it looked like, how it was used in battle, that's going to help us draw a lot of the spiritual parallels that Paul's trying to bring in here. So um, when you think of this shield, maybe it's from, I don't know, watching too many films like Gladiator or period movies like that, Spartacus, whatever it is. We've just watched this so often, or maybe just spent too much time in the spirit of Halloween costume shop. We, we, we think of a Roman shield as this uh, round, circular, kind of a little bit bigger than a garbage can lid uh, shield that they would use in hand-to-hand combat that you see in a lot of films or costume shops. This was, in Latin, what was called the parma. Uh, used, what was used very often in, in Roman military. But what scholars agree Paul is actually referring to here is the much larger shield used on the front battle lines in open war as well as the sieging of city walls known as the scutum. So this was a shield made from two wooden panels that were four feet high 
two and a half feet wide, wrapped around with cloth and then leather and then uh, um, iron rim put around the edges. So it was all one big, huge package. Maybe it basically looked like you were carrying around a door in front of you. But the idea was you could crouch down and actually shield your entire body behind this shield. And when you have, think about this, you had a whole line of these shields all stacked together beside each other. All of a sudden it becomes this impenetrable wall from attacking forces. And as they began to learn, when you take that wall and then stack other shields on top of it like this, it becomes a perfect defense against arrow attacks because now you're basically inside a room where arrows can no longer hit you with the attack. Now, yes, it's, it's surely antiquated technology by now, but when you think about this shield and how they designed it, there's actually some really cool military tactics kind of built into and going on here as well because if you look back previously in history, these same Roman shields were just made of wood. It was just a wooden shield, maybe of the same size, but just made of wood alone. But these door-like shields became so effective at blocking these arrow attacks in particular, which usually did a lot of damage before the infantry came in. The other uh, armies and military finally realized, okay, if we dip our arrow tips and javelin in pitch and light it on fire, now it doesn't matter if I hit you. As long as I hit your shield, I can light the shield on fire. It's going to cause you to both abandon the shield and to get out from underneath the protection that it provides you. So, seems like we got checkmate there, but then on the other side, when they understood that, that's the reason why they started wrapping the shields in cloth and then leather, because when you appropriately prepared the shield ahead of time by soaking it in water, now it could extinguish the flaming arrows, making these fiery attacks far less effective. So it was kind of a little bit of like back and forth between these two things. So, so keep that in mind now. This is how that, that shield was used in physical warfare. And I say that so that you have these things in mind when we try to understand now the spiritual significance of this uh, shield as a metaphor. So again, Paul says it's a full body shield. Remember this, a full body shield behind which one's entire body or person can be protected from an attack. It, it is a powerful defense against charging armies as well as particularly from our archery, archer, arrow attacks, and it had the ability to extinguish flaming arrows when properly prepared beforehand. Keep those things in mind now as we turn to talk about the shield in spiritual warfare. That's where we'll spend the majority of our time. So again, as we've seen with each of the pieces of armor, Paul uses a physical metaphor to describe a spiritual reality. And in our passage today, again, if you look at verse 16, he's using the metaphor of this door-like Roman shield, the scutum, to describe the way that our faith protects us from the destructive, fiery darts of the devil. You may wonder why it was that Paul chose to use this metaphor in particular when writing to the church in Ephesus. Um, I think one compelling reason why he may have done that, if you remember long time ago, back at the beginning of the year when we first started this series, and we talked about how in Ephesus, one of their claims to fame was they held one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis. Very interestingly, as theologian Clinton Arnold points out, the bow and arrow was depicted as the preferred weapon of Artemis. And in one of the famous oracles from the day, those who failed to fulfill the rites of obedience to her were said to 
pay the penalty of fire. And so, thus, Arnold points this out, quote, It's easy to see how Artemis could be seen as the one taking vengeance with fiery arrows on those who do not live according to her code, which would have been a, a difficult, ever-present reality for the church, seeking to live now in contrast to the, the cultural code of Ephesus, which was just steeped in, in worship of Artemis, like so much of the culture was about that. To live against that brought on these fiery attacks. It would have been a fitting metaphor for them. But as we seek to understand this today in our own lives and think, well, how do I apply this to my life today? I think we need to be able to answer three questions. First of all, what are the flaming darts of the evil one? Like, what is that? Secondly, we need to know what is this faith that protects us from them? And finally, how does faith do that? Basically, how do we use this shield? So first of all, if you look at the second half of verse 16, you see that what the shield of faith is intended to protect us from is these flaming darts of the evil one. Flaming darts of the evil one. And if you consider two things, Jesus' reference both the, to the temptations of the evil one that we are to pray to be delivered from in the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. As well as Jesus' prayer for us being kept from the evil one who is in this world in his high priestly prayer in John 17. What is clear or begins to become clear about these flaming darts is that they are at least temptations. Temptations from without, temptations from within to, to doubt God and to choose our own way. And we can see that they are hurled at us by the one that Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians 4 as the God of this world. The one who, he says, blinds the minds of men and women so that they cannot see the light of the gospel in Christ. These darts, they can come in all kinds of different forms. These temptations in all kinds of different ways. Persecutions, demonic attacks, temptations to sin, or even as Peter O'Brien notes, spontaneous thoughts. Think about that. Spontaneous thoughts of doubt, disobedience, rebellion, lust, malice, or fear. Have you ever had that happen to you where you're just driving along, you're walking along, and some of the most awful, horrific thoughts come into your mind. You're like, where did that come from? These are all the kinds of attacks coming against us, which altogether means sometimes the flaming darts of the enemy come in a barrage of arrows from without, and sometimes they work on the undefended emotions and affections of the heart from within. Remember the purpose of the breastplate of righteousness, to, to protect our emotions and our, and our heart. Sometimes that, that fire burns from within. But the point of these flaming darts, however they come, is that their, their point and their intent in the end is either to strike you outright or to so drain your energy to fight with these endless fiery attacks that you are tempted and want to abandon your shield and come out from underneath the protection that it offers you. And yet, faith, Paul says, faith is the means God has given us by which to stand against these attacks of the evil one and to extinguish their flames. Faith is what does that. And what is faith? What does that mean? Well, is that just a scent to a list of doctrinal truths? Is, is faith just leaping out into the dark without any logic or reason? Just, just trust and jump into the dark. Is that what faith is? No. Faith, the author of Hebrews tells us, and one of its most concise definitions, is the assurance of things hoped for. 
the conviction of things not yet seen. That's what faith is, according to the Bible. Faith, as as one author said, is the grasping hold of a, a root or a branch as your feet slip off the edge of a cliff and entrusting your entire salvation to its ability to keep you from falling to your destruction. It's grasping hold of that root and trusting. That's what, that's what faith in action looks like because faith is always, it's not kept to itself. It's something that is meant to lead you to action. Which means, while right belief is undoubtedly a big part of faith, it's the object of our faith particularly, not necessarily the size of it, that is most important in saving you. It's where you put your faith as opposed to how much you have, or how great your faith is. This actually used to confuse me a great deal uh, in the past when I would think of, for instance, in the New Testament, you see these accounts where Jesus would come and heal someone, and then he would say things to them like, your faith has healed you. And I would always be like, no, but didn't you just, you, you did it, what do you mean? And it was when I came to understand this truth that it made so much more sense that it's the object of our faith and not the size of it that matters most, I realized what Jesus was telling them was not, hey, congratulations, you had enough faith to be able to be healed. You had enough faith to be saved. No, he was saying their faith was placed in the right object, in himself. Your faith in me has saved you, has healed you. So faith is about trust in the right object, about actually clinging to that object to that branch, or whatever it be is. It's not an intellectual assent to the fact that that branch could save me if I were to grab it. It's actually taking hold of it. But I want to bring us back to, to focus here because I don't want us to lose sight of Paul's image in the midst of this whole discussion because, again, Paul says, the thing that shields and protects us, that's why he's using that metaphor of a shield, the thing that enables us to stand firm in the midst of the battle is this faith. Which means, let's, let's bring that image back now into what we're talking about here with faith, from what we learned about the shield in history. That means faith is something that covers every part of us when we take refuge behind it. It covers every part of us. Faith is a sure defense against all the attacks of the enemy, whether that's a frontal assault, his fiery darts, whatever it is. Faith is an effective defense against that hand. Faith extinguishes the flames of the enemy's arrows that seek to cause us to want to abandon our faith and move out from underneath its protection. It is a full and sure defense against all of the enemy's attacks. And the reason our clinging trust and dependence on God can do that, the reason our faith works like a shield against the flaming attacks of the enemy, listen, because in Places far too many to even list for you this morning because all through his word what we see is that God describes himself as the one who is our shield. He says he is our shield. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said it this way. This is what it means to take up the shield of faith. It's not trying to work up some kind of feeling of faith. Faith leads straight to the almighty God who is our savior and very present help in trouble. So just to give you a few examples, Genesis 15, God says, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield. Psalm 18, David writes, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. Psalm 
3, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Later, God, the, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Again and again, God is describing himself. I am your shield, actually. Even Jesus himself, weeping over Jerusalem in Luke 13, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. In fact, if you think about it, the entire message of the gospel is about this. It's about a Savior who shielded us from the just wrath of God against our sin by absorbing that wrath fully in himself and his death on the cross. That beautiful word, rich theological word we learned about propitiation, which is about turning aside wrath. That's how Jesus shields us. A shield would cause blows to glance off. That's how Jesus is our shield against the wrath of God we deserved for our sin. That's the whole message of the gospel. And once our hope and our trust is set in the right objects, namely the God who is our shield, our rock, and our fortress, then taking up the shield in the midst of these constant attacks of the enemy is accomplished not by looking inside ourselves and trying to summon up enough courage or faith to face these attacks, but by looking upward, looking to Jesus. That's how we take up this shield. We look to the one who is our shield. We look to Jesus as Hebrews 12 tells us the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. He, he shielded us from the wrath that we deserve and sat down at the right hand of the Father so that in every place where, where persecution, where danger, where fear, where guilt over past sin or shame over present failure seeks to knock that shield out of our hands, Leave us defenseless. Whenever Satan tempts me to despair, as we sang in that modern hymn last week, and tells me of the guilt within, our response every time is to look upward and see him there who made an end to all my sin. It sounds crazy, but to actually agree with the enemy, to agree with his accusations and condemning attacks and still rest secure under the protective covering of righteousness that's been credited to us from Christ's account so that we can actually speak those truths out loud to the enemy to say, yes, I am guilty. Yes, this sin that I've just committed is worthy of God's judgment, is worthy of removing me and putting me out of his presence, and yet by his grace, I know that God has already punished this sin and all sins past, present, and future in his son Jesus. It's the debts already being paid. I stand not guilty before him. To say to ourselves, I didn't earn my way into God's family to begin with. And so I will cling by faith to the promise that neither can I earn my way out. But Jesus means it when he says, those who my Father has given me, no one can snatch them out of my hand. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like to take up the shield of faith in the midst of Satan's most fierce, fiery attacks. And here's the thing. The more practiced you become at doing that, the more practiced you become at trusting in those promises, the more our shield is properly prepared beforehand with water. 
Water sprinkled and poured on it from the spring of water that wells up inside us to extinguish every flaming arrow that's directed our way. So that, like David wrote in Psalm 3, we can truly say and believe, with with this shield of faith protecting me, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. We can say like David in Psalm 4, in peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And say and believe like Paul in Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or any other flaming arrows of the evil one? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I suppose we could add, who shield us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's like that hymn that we sang this morning so powerfully reminds us, the soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, I'll never, I'll never forsake. That's good news. And yet I know, in spite of all the refuge, the safety that that, that God provides underneath this shield of faith, I think a a question that I think could still legitimately be asked, particularly if you're experiencing or have just gone through a a really heavy season of attack yourself. I suppose the question could be asked, yes, but, but why does God allow me to come under the flaming, fiery attacks of the devil to begin with? Why does he do that? Why, if he really loved me, if he really wanted to protect me, why not deliver me off of the battlefield entirely rather than allowing me to have to still experience these attacks, albeit underneath his shield of protection? Why, why does he do that? It's a great question. And I don't actually fully know the answer to it. I suppose we could say in one sense, he has already done that in that Jesus fought the battle for us. He went out onto the battlefield for us, fought the battle and won the the victory for us over Satan, sin, death, all these things in his death. And yet, of course, the reality is, I mean, Paul's telling us to take up this spiritual armor and fighting God's strength because we are. We are still in this battle. We know that the outcome is sure, and yet, while we wait for Christ's return, we are still in this battle. And, And We don't know why that still happens, why he would allow us to do that. But I wonder if maybe we're given some insight into the reason why. If you look at the life of someone like Job, uh, Satan comes to God, if you know the story, and asks to afflict Job with all of his flaming arrows, believing that Job only served God for what he could get from him. And that if he were to remove, the moment that Job lost all of God's blessings, he would curse him. And it seems almost incomprehensible when you're reading this and you see that God actually allows him within limits to carry out this fiery attack. And yet, as you read through it, the more and more you keep going through, you come to see 
with greater and greater clarity this truth that while Satan had one purpose for the fire, God had another one. I need you to hear that. Let me say that again. God had a different purpose. Satan had one purpose for the fire. God had a different purpose. And it seems actually like Job understand that, understood that himself when he says this, Job 23, Yet he, that is God, knows the way I have taken, and when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. He understood something of the, the heat of these flaming attacks, that the God who was his shield and protection was refining, bringing forth his, his gold with greater and greater purity and clarity, which actually sounds like it inspired another verse from that same hymn that we sang, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not harm thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Maybe you're in the midst of a fiery trial right now, today. But whether you're facing that now or you have or, or you will someday, how does looking at all this that we've looked at this morning begin to help, begin to strengthen you as you learn about both the protection God provides as well as the purpose behind allowing you to still go through these fiery trials? How does hearing of this safety and the protection and the calm provided by the shield of faith in the midst of any attack bring uh, you inspiration to take up that shield once again. Take up that shield of faith that Paul says once again, because again, it's a shield that, that's always available to us, and yet, as with each of the pieces of armor, it's a, it's a piece of armor we must take up and intentionally use. Will you pick up the shield and use it today? You take up that shield that perhaps is being knocked out of your hands because of the barrage of attacks and fear and doubt, questions. It's, it's struck you somehow. The flames have somehow caught and you've maybe dropped the shield. Maybe would this inspire you today to pick it up again and experience the shelter, the shelter of your Savior and rest in his good, albeit many times hidden purposes in allowing you to continue to go through that fiery trial. Maybe, maybe that could inspire you to do that today. Or maybe you're in a place where you'd say, no, I feel like I am, I am holding this shield. I do feel like I'm holding up well with this shield. And maybe through this, what God is calling you today is to stand beside another brother and sister who is under an attack right now and to join your shield in behind theirs or beside in order to form a greater protection around them. Certainly that is another way that God uses his people together. We're not individuals, we are a family that joins and also fights together in this battle. In 1 Peter 4, 12, Peter writes this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, as though something strange were happening to you. Why not? Why would he say that? Well, because I think Peter knew exactly, as Paul knows, because we're in a battle. It's a battle that's unseen. It's a battle that rages in the spiritual realm, and yet we are most certainly in it. We are in a battle, not on vacation. Right? This, is, this is Juno Beach, not Jericho Beach. And yet, just a few verses later, he, he concludes with this blessed hope for each one of us in the midst of the battle. 
that I want to just leave with you as we conclude here, reminding us of this. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power. Remember, because we fight in the strength of his might. To him be the power forever and ever.